Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Knollcast. But I have a bunch of different things to kind of touch on tonight. Uh, going to thank our title sponsor, Louisiana Hot Sauce, uh, as we always do. Three simple ingredients, one fantastic product. Uh, and um, hey, just acknowledge, uh, I don't want to be melodramatic about this, but certainly, you know, tonight's show, a little bit of a heavy heart with the passing of, of Gino Hayes late last night. Gino, uh, we talked about him on the previous podcast, guy who suffering very significant liver problems and, and ultimately you know, left this earth uh, late last night. Very sad, uh, sad. This one hit home for me a little bit more for whatever reason. I, I think it's because he's just so young and, and taken from us so early. Uh, great player on a team that didn't have too many great players or great moments. But, uh, you know, as we mentioned, one of the better games I've seen against Alabama, great moment in Florida State beating then number two, uh, Boston College on the road. Just a, a sad day, and want to open the pod. Uh, want to open the podcast up with uh, with the acknowledgement of uh, of the loss of Geno Hayes. Completely agree, man. It 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 sucks, dude. Like thirty three. That that was one of the first guys that I, I you know actually remember covering for the Knowles. A, a dude who you know Madison County guy stayed local and, and was really a standout player for them. I, 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 my heart goes out to his family and and uh, obviously that. Madison County staff and, and the guys who played with them. It, that that sucks. And it, it's it's a crappy way to start a podcast. It just happened so fast. Like all of a sudden he's in hospice with with, with liver side. Just man, uh, I, I, you know, you you think you're invincible at that age and and, and I, I I guess we're not. You want to uh you want to get on with this thing? Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll move on, like we said. Uh, you know, talk about a couple different things. So, uh, obviously, the uh, past two podcasts we've really devoted to uh, the end of spring and looking at the football program as it kind of moves into a little bit of uh, a slower period of time. Exit interviews is a term that you hear about an awful lot. I just wanted to spend a couple minutes, kind of getting your ideas to what that exactly is, how honest of a conversation those are, and and kind of, you know, obviously you kind of plant different seeds with guys, you try to motivate guys differently, uh, just give your opinion kind of as as they go about that process and how they may, been, uh, how they may vary from uh, individual to individual. Yeah, so basically what they're going to do is, you know, Coach Norvell and uh, the, the whatever relevant staff, whether you know, training staff, academic staff, uh, you know, your position coach, analyst, whomever else they deem necessary in the meeting is going to go over kind of where they think you are uh, with your career to this point. They're going to take a look and say, "Hey, you are now a uh, you know sophomore, or junior, or whatever. How are you? How are you doing? Like, like you know, wh- where do you think you should be? Are are you where you think you should be? What do you think about our plan for you?" You know, there's a lot of important things that they're going to discuss, but it's also sort of a, a leveling, right? Hey, you are here. This is where we see you within the program. We want to make sure that where you see yourself matches up. And it doesn't always match up, right? Uh, sometimes players may not realize that the staff has as high hopes for them as they do. You know, like sometimes like, man, we really need to motivate this guy because we think he can really be something. At other times, look, maybe that they... Don't necessarily think it's going to be something, but you still got to motivate him if he's going to stay around, right? You want to make sure that he's going to work hard. Kind of a, 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 an honest level setting is is what goes on at these. And so they might say, hey, like, 
you know, the last time we did this, we, we said you need to get your weight to this. And currently you're weighing in, you know, at, at this. And they'll turn to the strength coach and say, Hey, what, uh, what's going on here? And they say, well, uh, you know, kind of miss lifts this day, this day, and this day. And, uh, you know, or hell, maybe it's something good, right? Like, Hey, look, he's, he's done a great job. He's, he's shown up. He's, he's done all the stuff we've asked him to do, blah, blah, blah. And you know, they're, they're really, really happy with him. This is some, this is an area where transfers can, can happen. Uh, and often, oftentimes is kind of the impetus for it, right? Like this is the last time you're going to meet with everybody before off season conditioning, summer workouts really hit. So they, they want you to kind of make sure they're on the same page with you. It's, it's an interesting time to do it, but it's basically all, all the schools do it because you, know, you have summer coming up. But that's kind of what happens, right? It's it's a good opportunity for a player to ask questions of the staff when they're all there. And if you do them well, they, they have a lot of honesty, but also a lot of encouragement because if you were super honest with some of these guys, they would all just transfer out and you don't want to have a roster of 65 guys. So you kind of have to keep some salesmanship up, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what is interesting to me. And, and you have to walk a a fine line here trying to motivate guys, whether or not, you know, this is part of the quote unquote processing, uh, you know, of guys, maybe one to two people off your roster, or you try to plant a seed. I mean, it's, uh, you know, for many of our listenership, it's not all that different than an annual review or whatever else you may find in a, in a professional setting. I mean, I think it's a, a, like you said, it's a time for both parties to get a feel for where they are, what the expectations are. And then, um, you know, some guys, respond well, real well to just kind of blunt conversations and uh, I- interesting to see how the staff handles those in general. I, I will say the one difference between an annual review, I guess, at, at your job um, and an annual review you know, for, for college football is that at most jobs, you're expecting to be there you know, more than four years. And you are generally in pretty regular communication with, with the folks that are doing your review. In college football, I mean, there's only one head coach and there's a hundred guys on the team, a little more than that if you count all the walk-ons. So you may not get a, a real one-on-one chance to sit down with all the, the important decision makers on like a, on a regular basis. Whereas like I talk to my boss, you know, not every day, but at least a couple of times a week. I, I generally have a pretty good feel you know, for where I stand. Not that the players don't have a good feel for where they stand, but this is the one time of year where they really see it all laid out at the same time with everybody in the room. Right, so like academics is there, and academics, and uh, and you know, wait, and and strength staff are there, and they say, wait a second, um, well, I don't know, like you're missing workouts, you're missing academic meetings, you're missing tutoring, so it's it's hard, it's a little bit harder for some of the guys to deflect it on, onto something else when a lot of the people that will hold them accountable are are there, but I, I think it's 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 an important thing. And speaking of transfers, by the way, I do want to note this. Uh, so, I think we discussed this last show or two shows ago. The NCAA originally, in their uh, transfer eligibility thing, where everybody's going to be eligible for the fall, originally the proposal read that you had to be into the portal by May one. But for this year, because they're actually voting on this on the twenty eighth, which is probably the day you'll be listening to this, in case a miracle happens tonight, they're actually going to make that July one. So you have to be if you want to be eligible in the fall, you have to be in the portal in for by July one. This year, in future years, though, dude, you got to be in by May one. And to me, that's going to open up an interesting opportunity for when you have these exit interviews, but also 
Do you think some programs might be sliding spring games back a little bit if they want to avoid guys transferring out? You know, like because a lot, a lot fewer players will uh, will be transferring if they're not going to be immediately eligible. And so, if you can delay when spring is, players will not have quite a good feel for where they stand on the depth chart, and you might be able to get some of your important backups to stick around a little bit longer than they otherwise would have. Does, does that make sense? Like, if I'm a head coach at a, at a good program that has a lot of guys who are going to be looking elsewhere for playing time. I'm having my spring game like May 14th in the future. I mean, find me a place to where uh, someone can exploit the system and the system will be exploited. So most certainly, if uh, if that's where you can put it and that can limit yourself to transfers or whatever else, then I would expect the general calendar of spring games to get pushed a little deeper into the spring and, and closer to summer if that's possible. Speaking of exit interviews, Randy Clements, Blast from the past here was FSU's offensive line coach in, uh, in 2019. Uh, well, well, Ken Abrales was the OC. He was at Ole Miss with Lane Kiffin, pretty widely regarded as one of the best offensive line coaches in the country. Ole Miss 24-7 site reported that he was terminated today. I don't really know all the details behind that, but I, I figured I'd bring that up tonight just as we start kind of new business. That's that surprise you? Yeah. Most certainly. I mean, I know that you had spoken with a, a contact and, and they kind of made it sound like business as usual, just as far as a difference of opinions or whatever else. I'm, you know, labeled me fairly skeptical uh, to that being the, the only reason timing doesn't really fit, you know, difference of opinion slash philosophical ideas as to how to go about executing the sport. Uh, I'm sure there's more to the story. Uh, when you have somebody like Lane Kiffin, I think, you know, sometimes when things end, they, they end particularly quickly. Yeah, that was uh, the, the timing of this is is quite weird. I mean, Clements is one of the even, you know, certainly most people agree that Clements is one of the five best offensive line coaches in the country. Certainly top 10. Those type of people, particularly at a place like Old Miss, don't just get fired over the weekend because of, you know, two people had a divergence of opinions. I would tip. <laughs> I would typically agree. It's one man's opinion. That's and, and unless it just somehow came to a head right then and there, which would be surprising. By the way, the, I do want to play a quick game with you before we get into some recruiting chatter and some NFL draft chatter. Since we're still in our new business segment here, get a little trivia for you. How many receivers who played under Jimbo Fisher, any school, FSU, LSU, A&M, are in the NFL? So I think I know the Florida State number. My mind immediately goes back to trying to think if there's any way that somebody, you know, from LSU could still, you know, some freshman or something like that could still be on a roster. Is the number zero, bud? No, it's one. It's actually one. You're going to be surprised by who this guy is. It's actually Auden Tate. I, I, I was exactly, yeah. So Auden Tate is making ridiculous catches wherever he is on any roster uh, and will probably be in the league for another five years or so, I would guess. So that's a, a bad miss by me. But yeah, kind of ridiculous when you think of, as to where Jimbo Fisher has lived in the recruiting world. Although it could be too, depending on if Courtney Davis, um, who was waived in September by Minnesota, he may be on the practice squad for, for Indianapolis. He, he played for him at... at uh, um, at Texas a So point there. I mean, point point stays. If, if we're kind of in a gray area over as to someone's status on a practice uh, squad, I think overall point remains the same. 
Uh, yeah, that, that's just interesting. Some of that's certainly luck and happenstance. Uh, but like I said, when you're, when you're, you know, for the most part living in kind of the apex of, of uh, the college football recruiting world, at least when he was at Florida State, and uh, Jimbo has found himself back in that neighborhood at Texas A&M, it's kind of wild to think that, uh, that that's the number. I, I guess, and this is brought about by Richard Green officially retiring. Yeah, I, I just looked into it and was kind of like, I wonder who... Uh, that that and then Shadrick Banks, a, a player who A and M just signed, uh, decided to transfer receiver. And I was watching some of their spring game, and uh, you know, Demon Demas uh, wasn't wasn't playing. And you know, I've always kind of had a theory that but with with this offense, um, that some of these guys who are like a little bit lesser recruited, they're not the physical like freaks. They're, they're more like the good route runner types. You know, the, the real kind of. You know, players who get by on on headiness and route running and, and understanding spacing and stuff do better in this offense uh, than uh, than than the guys who are you know really like super athletic. And I've been been on the Cover Three show. We've been talking about contenders and whatnot, and and A and M's offensive explosiveness through, through the air has been like bottom ninety or worse in the country for three straight years. And my general thought is like the game is getting more explosive, and if you're not getting more explosive and adapting as an offense, that you're you're getting you know you're losing ground against the field in that area. Now you can still win a lot of games, obviously. And A and M has a great defense and a fairly efficient offense, but the big boys throw home runs, right? Like they 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 throw knockout punches rather. And I just thought that was interesting, but it kind of led me down a rabbit hole as to like who is actually still in the NFL who, who played for Jimbo at the receiver position. Um, so just curious, curious there about that. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. And, and at that, and, and also I was doing a little, little, uh, little dive on, on some of these quarterbacks for this NFL draft. So, you know, Mac Jones, we'll, we'll see where he goes uh, on Thursday night. But yeah, I just thought I was curious. I brought it up and get your thoughts. All right, so we'll move to uh, from from the conversation of previous recruits getting drafted to uh, to current recruiting. Uh, Brendan Sinone uh, over at two four seven had a real interesting article about Florida State's kind of uh, I don't know if reemergence is the right term, but certainly some of the uh, importance that's being put on uh, recruiting the South Georgia area. Good article, uh, enjoyed reading it, and would recommend it to our listeners if you haven't otherwise gone across it. Um, kind of tailored or, or paired with that uh, Jerron Willis kid out of uh, Leesburg, just north of Albany there, appears to be on the verge of committing, scheduled to commit this Saturday. Kid that is mainly considering, I think, Florida State and Georgia Tech are, are kind of his top two here. Uh, four-star prospect, kind of depending on where you look at lower four-star, but uh, would be a, a pretty nice get for Florida State and would certainly continue to uh, – to build on this general idea of Florida State leaning on South Georgia fairly heavily. Now, look, you know, Kirby Smart is <laughs> is uh, is kind of the perfect match if you were going to draw someone up in the lab to be a exceptional recruiter, particularly in that part of the uh, the world. I mean, his father is uh, I don't know high school football royalty, but certainly someone that has long established and the head coach at Bainbridge there for a long time. Kirby, very good player in his own right, and an all conference. Uh, SEC player and, and is just somebody that's going to be able to get the vast majority of the top flight kids out of that part of the world. But in that kind of second area of recruiting that we've talked about, a uh, second level of recruiting that we've talked about a lot on the podcast where Florida State kind of has to make its bones and, and uh, find kids that maybe they're not going to have to 
fight Alabama, Clemson, Georgia for. Uh, certainly makes sense to lean on that area in your backyard as much as possible and still a, a part of the world where you find kind of hidden gems and kids that aren't as, you know, aren't quite as uh, familiar as some of the larger metropolises around the Southeast. Yeah, man. I, I, I like drawing Willis a lot, by the way. I, I, we, at 24-7 Sports, we have him as a, a top 150 player in the entire country. And yet, Georgia you know, has not gone all in on him. That is, exa- like you just said, that is exactly the sweet spot that FSU needs to live in for the most part. They need to identify players who are probably not going to be heavily pursued. Probably not, because I can't rule it out, right? By you know, the Georgia, Clemson, Bama, Ohio State, maybe like LSU, depending on what, what your thoughts are there and, and, and what part of the country you're trying to recruit it. Those are the schools that, for the most part, you are not going to be in position to win battles against this season, with limited exceptions. Jerron Willis, if you're going to get him, you have to beat out Georgia Tech. Now, if both programs are operating at peak efficiency, if both programs are, are selling themselves, Florida State is a better program than Georgia Tech is. Willis is committing on Saturday. He actually did announce uh, that he was going to be committing on Saturday, I believe, while he was like unofficially visiting Tech's campus. So, you know, read into that what you will. Uh, but Willis is a player that FSU staff has has put a good amount of effort into. I think he's an impact guy for them. He's got some decent size, but he actually moves quite well, which they certainly need with an emphasis being placed on coverage players. Look, it's an FSU-Georgia Tech battle. Uh, this is one that I'll read into a little bit, right? Now, Jeff Collins, head coach of Georgia Tech, is obviously a defensive guy, high-energy dude. Uh, Georgia Tech's doing a really nice job recruiting relative to their normal standards. I think the pandemic hurt them just like it did uh, the Knowles. Otherwise, it might be a little bit farther along, but certainly so would have Florida State been. This is one to watch on Saturday, man. I'm, I'm really excited to see if they can pull this off. It, it would be a major help to their class. I think both sides feel somewhat confident. Yeah, both sides feel fairly confident. Tashar Choice is one of the lead recruiters for Georgia Tech. A uh, good recruiter in his own right. Uh, Georgia Tech did have their spring game uh, of sorts there on Friday night uh, in Atlanta. and So I'm sure they tried to put their best foot forward with him. Uh, teammate of the uh, South Carolina kid that just transferred in, and, and Leesburg is a you know great area, a good good high school that produces a considerable amount of talent, and uh, yeah. So if you can establish uh, a presence in South Georgia, obviously it's a geographic strength for you as far as proximity to campus, uh, and you can find kids, not necessarily hide kids, but find kids that maybe aren't uh, as easily as found, and and there's certainly a seven on seven scene there. Uh, but it's not nearly as developed as, uh, you know, like a Atlanta, Miami, Orlando, et cetera. Uh, it's just a, a little bit of a different world. Sometimes, uh, <clears throat> you know, you can find kids that have some some great issues as well. So you may need to get in on them uh, earlier and, and try to turn that ship around a little bit. But uh, certainly an area of the country that Florida State's had a lot of historical success in and uh, an area that, you know, they'll try to lean pretty heavily on, at least in the beginning stages of this turnaround. I thought Sinone's article on Knowles 24-7 was, was really good, by the way. Uh, and one of the things I've noticed in South Georgia is that for a long time, well, long time, but a long time in, in the recruiting world, we have been losing good high school coaches in the state of Florida to other southern states. They're just paying more, right? And Georgia being 
one of the prime culprits there. There are some coaches in Georgia now who make over six figures. And I think we are seeing that trickle down slowly, but surely into South Georgia. I'm not saying that all those coaches in South Georgia make six figures. They certainly don't. Hell, some of them would probably love to make, you know, 50,000, 60,000. But it's becoming more of a thing where some of these schools are investing more in their programs and, and really, really trying to compete because the talent, I think, is, has always been there. But the development of the talent, the investment in the programs at the high school level uh, has, has improved. And I also think like some of the local organizations that, t- you know, that, that, that get the buses and the vans and take kids around to get them noticed in seven on seven and you know, get on them early about, hey, man, grades matter, right? Like you need to have some sort of grades if you want to get into school. They're identifying these kids earlier and earlier, and that is uh, is going to be to FSU's benefit, certainly, because the, it's it's right in FSU's backyard. If you recruit the area well, you're able to get the kids on campus a number of times. Um, certainly, Willis fits fits that bill, and uh, they're they're hoping to land him. It'll be an important early benchmark, I I, I think, for this staff, you know, for and, and for Coach Marv. All right, man, before we get into draft talk, I want to take a minute to thank our friends at the Legendary Home Loans team. That's Shannon and Chad, 844-FSU-LOAN. It's 844-FSU-LOAN. They tagged us on Twitter today at Nolcast. Uh, another closing. So, Ingram, got to get out to UPS, man. Got to send off some more shirts to the fine folks there, and we're really excited about that. Over 150 Nolcast listeners have decided to go with Shannon and Chad. There's a reason for that. Right, it's it's people you can trust. Customer service, awesome rates, knowledge of the industry. They they really care about you, and they want to help you get the best possible loan for your situation. Give them a shout. Heck, you may not even be totally in the market for a house right now. Never hurts to get pre qualified. Give them a call eight four four FSU loan eight four four FSU loan. Inventory is kind of fluctuating in different parts of the country, and uh, you need to be ready if your house pops up on the market. With that, let's uh, let's go ahead and talk a little draft, man. Let's do talk some draft. I mean, uh, you know, not a, a ton of Florida State uh, <laughs> premier prospects going to be taken. Obviously, Asante we've talked about for a while as a guy that is uh, kind of back of the first half. Uh, you know, maybe first five or ten picks of the second half. Uh, but we'll you know just go over the the draft eligible lot, try to get a feel for where some of these guys may go, what it says uh, about the team, and then you know maybe a quick look at what next year's uh, next year's choices might look like. Indeed. So uh, I do want to point out that everybody who who thinks that Asante is not going to go in the first round, Asante Samuel, the, the field corner for FSU, I, w- I want to point this out. Last year on the Barton and Bud show, which was the, the show I was doing for national stuff for, for 24-7 CBS at the time, we played a game. And our game was the guy who has a list that has all the first round picks on it he wins the game. To tie break it, whoever has the shorter list. So, like, let's say I'm going to get 32 guys. I'm going to, I'm at a list of 45. I'm pretty sure that all 32 first rounders are going to be on my list of 45. Right? If you have a list of 50, and I have a list of 45, and we both have all the first rounders on there. Guess what? I win because I I had fewer guesses uh, to to get them all right. Last year, opened it up to all the podcast listeners. Guess what? Nobody won because nobody had Damon Arnett in the first round. We think we know about the NFL draft. We see all these mock drafts and it's mock draft season. Some of these writers are forced to do like two mock drafts a week, which is really kind of crazy. And you have to change it up constantly to keep keep people clicking on it. I've seen mock drafts with the Santos Samuel listed. I've seen mock drafts without him listed. 
I think there's a decent chance he goes, man. Guys, guys are professional type player. I think scouts are going to like that. You know, he kept playing hard for three coaching staffs. All the coaching staffs are going to say really good stuff about him. And like he kept playing hard on a team that didn't have anything going for. Him. He easily could have opted out if he wanted to, you know, and and decided not to. So his ability to, to cover guys in space, I feel like, and, and be a valuable member of a defense is something that a lot of teams are going to be looking for. So I, I could certainly see him going, you know, in the first round. But if not, I don't think he's going to last you know, that much longer into the second. Yeah. And a guy that's probably gone by the 40th pick in my opinion. Um, yeah. Just like you said, a guy that is, uh, has interviewed well, uh, will have, you know, people vouch for him in the, uh, both the, you know, kind of on the record and off you know, a little bit limited in size, but, uh, you know, it's not going to come as a surprise to anybody and, uh, will certainly be kind of the, uh, banner banner carrier for Florida State when it comes to the uh, the early part of the draft. Uh, obviously, Marvin and and Hamza <clears throat> had they turned pro last year would have been uh, earlier picks. We've talked you know, kind of ad nauseum about uh, the season that Marvin had and maybe the reasons for that. Fourth round, fifth round picks, in your opinion? Here, I mean, it, it's kind of hard for me to to say that about a kid who had a chance to go first round or, or second round last year, had he turned, but uh, didn't have the season that he thought he would. And then Hamza, obviously some injury questions there, but uh, a guy that is, uh, you know, if he can play ball and if he gets in the right system, I think has a, as a, if he can play ball, if he can stay healthy and, uh, and get on the field. And if he gets in the right system, I, I think Hamza has a, a chance to be a, you know, an eight year NFL vet, but is, probably not going to go about that process being nearly the draft pick that he would have been last year. I, I would agree with that. I mean, obviously overcoming the injury is something he's going to have to continue to prove to, to NFL guys. He's going to stay healthy. Uh, if I said, Hey, are you reasonably confident that both these guys get drafted? Almost for sure. Yeah. 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 I, I can't see a, a spot where they go undrafted. I mean, Marvin is, has his doubters and, levels of concern, but Marvin's not going undrafted. Uh, and neither is Hamza, in my opinion. This is going to be interesting because it really makes me wonder, and we wondered about this at the time, so I'm not second-guessing here. We're, we're, we're first-guessing this. Uh, or, well, we're, 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 we're guessing this again. Do you think Marvin Wilson actually got a first-round grade after 2019? No, I don't think he did. Um, I don't either, and I didn't at the time. Yeah, I do think that he, yeah, I think uh, Marvin would have gone somewhere between 25 and 45, kind of kind of the same conversation we're having with Asante right now. I think there's a chance he would have been a first round pick, uh, but I, I don't, I think he got a second to third round response from the NFL. That, that's my guess too. I, mean, I, I can't say that I know for sure, but like I, Guys who get legitimate like first round grades don't typically return to school. They, they 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 just don't. They go. That said, he was a good player in 2019. He was an impact guy, and people are like, "Oh yeah, well he didn't have a good year this year." No, he sure didn't. At times, he didn't look like he was in good shape, right? Like he he did a lot of you know off field activism, but didn't you know didn't play very well on the field, and uh, ultimately that's going to hurt him some. The, the play on the field, but like look at a guy like Rashad Bateman for Minnesota. Bateman was an absolute stud as a sophomore for Minnesota in 2019. And then he was not nearly as good this year in 2020. A- another South Georgia kid, by the way. 
here though, People are still going to bet on Bateman and they're still going to take him fairly high. I think it all it takes is one team. And I do think that that one team out there could look at Marvin's 2019, his overall prospect pedigree, which includes what what, what he was as a recruit. And teams definitely do take that into account because it, it does seem to translate a little bit, even at the tail end of that projection. And they care. Well, yeah, and the same measurables that make you an elite prospect uh, frequently at high school transfer over to the league. I'm, I'm saying, no, I'm not saying Marvin's a elite guy, but as uh, from a you know physical standpoint, just walking off the bus. But Josh Kando is. I mean, you know, the same thing that made Kando a uh, eighth or tenth overall prospect in the country is going to be pretty appealing to some NFL guys when they look at him in a you know shorts and t-shirt. I think Kando is going to get picked. He's probably the guy that I'm that I'm most confident of who gets picked of the remaining guys. And I say that, and, I, and I'm not forgetting Tamari and Terry, but I, I think Kando, he's going to interview extremely well. He's still very athletic. He has a frame. He's extremely intelligent. Nobody thinks he's, he's not a hard worker. If you're an NFL team and you have a pick in like rounds, I don't know, four, five, six, or seven, you can say, you know what? There's there's something there. Like he struggled to stay healthy. I think you can also think that he probably wasn't super healthy after the Georgia Tech game this year. But like you could get something out of him, right? NFL kind of has had a decent career for Josh Sweat after he really didn't have you know super productive career in, in Tallahassee, largely because of injury. You know, I, I I could see somebody picking picking Josh Kando here. I think uh, I think. Janorials will get drafted as well. I mean, maybe I'm just being too, uh, I got too, too many shades of, of garnet and gold in my glass tonight, but, uh, I, I, you know, he had a, he did well by himself in Mobile. I'll put it that way and impressed, uh, impressed people, uh, with his ability to take the coaching and does fairly well, uh, in a interview setting. My understanding, I think Robinson will be a late round pick as well. So, uh, you know, you're looking at getting, do, do you think he's more likely to get picked than, than Terry? No, because Terry just has different tape. You know, Garrett, Terry just has game tape that's going to speak at a different level than than Janarius does. Uh, but I think all these guys are going to get drafted. I think there'll be later drafts. I think, uh, but I do think we'll be sitting here talking about a team with six draft picks that went three and six last year. So if I set the over under at five and a half, you're, you're going to take the over. I mean, I will take the over and put a very small bet on it, bud. You know, I mean, I I, I think they do get all six. It's not. You know, something I'm going to bet the old proverbial house on, certainly. But, uh, yeah, I I do like the chances of all of these guys being late-round picks. Or, or, excuse me, not all these guys, but uh, the the people in, you know, that we're kind of talking about fringe, fringe players as far as draft picks ultimately get their name called. I will take uh, – I'll, I'll take the under on five and a half. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical on Robinson, just the the lack of productivity. It wasn't like he had a ton of injuries. In his career, and I don't know that he has the same, you know, burst that I think Kando might. I'm also interested to see how how Terry interviews. I mean, he he's kind of a one trick pony, and he has a good trick, but he also for a bigger bodied receiver, like he's fast. He has good deceleration skills. He also is not a guy who goes up and 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 wins a lot of balls, like as far as contested catches. 
you know, red zone stuff, that that type of thing. So I'd be interested to see, you know, how he does with that ultimately. Um, I do think it's interesting that that they're gonna lose conservatively four, more aggressively six, or uh, I don't think there's anybody anybody else who might get picked, so I'm not gonna say seven, off a team that only won three games last year. And yes, pandemic shortened season agreed. If anything, I think this might might demonstrate difficulties that this coaching staff had in this pandemic shortened season, right? Like getting through to some of these guys, getting all these guys on the same page when you really didn't have a true off season. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, uh, to be fair, so Asante declared law didn't play in what the last two games uh, or maybe just the Duke game. Uh, Marvin had his own injury problems. Hansa didn't come back till Clemson. Uh, you know, my point here being that an awful lot of these guys, you know, didn't necessarily take the full snap load that you would just look at and go, oh, you had six players drafted, played nine games, lost six of them. That's kind of hard to make sense of. Um, I do think it's going to be frustrated when you look at how many, you know, when you look at this and and see the amount of defensive talent that was drafted and ultimately what that defense looked like last year. So that's kind of an easy remark to make uh, and be interested to see how they uh, adjust and, and ultimately grow as a unit. But uh, yeah, we'll just have to see what the NFL draft looks like, what we can take from it. Um, I don't know that this is necessarily like a depressing conversation <laughs> that we've just had, but if you project to next year, uh, there's not a whole lot out there. I mean, uh, you know, Cooper's going to get drafted, in my opinion, best case scenario, third round, probably more likely fourth or fifth round. I don't, nobody else really immediately jumps to me as far as NFL draft prospects from next year's roster. I'm, I'm sure somebody uh, or some buddies will emerge, hopefully, but not a, not a ton of, uh, you know, NFL ready players running around on that roster. I, I think you're right. Uh, you know, Jermaine Johnson, I feel like is a guy who who will get picked. That's true. Maybe I was thinking more, you know, native roster, but you're right. That, I don't know if he's a first round type pick. I, I was thinking the exact same thing. Like in full disclosure, in our, our our show prep meeting, none of us brought up Jermaine Johnson because he's been on the roster for like you know <laughs> what two months. Um, but I, I think he has a chance to get to get picked, assuming Parchment gets enrolled and all you know all that stuff. Uh, you know, upside, I think he could go if if he really fulfills it. <laughs> That's my optimistic. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe you're right, but yeah, we're stretching. No, I may not be right. I mean, like I'm just trying to really stretch here. As far as the other transfers, like, look, if you're not standing out as a special running back on this roster, I don't think you're going to get drafted. Like, do you think there's anybody on this roster right now at the running back position who's really going to get picked in next year's draft? No, I mean, I mean, the best case scenario, let me hit me with my double optimistic uh, on this one. Maybe Corbin develops into a late, late round pick. That, that is the only person in that room right now that I think is a, yeah, and even that, that is very, very optimistic. So if I gave you like three to one odds on Devontae Love Taylor, you taking him? Yeah. Uh, if you get a place and you can move him down to guard, I'll take that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if he's playing at tackle, I'm a little uh, a little more skeptical of that. But uh, look, Love Taylor could be he's a sixth or seventh round pick. No, no, not at all. Uh, but they can look at that and make their own projections. He he could be a late round pick. Yeah, that's fair. If if somehow Emmett Rice were to come back super healthy, I could maybe maybe see him sniffing. Um, 
Gainer has eligibility, right? So like it, he could blow up. Like it, think, think about guys that have like NFL style athleticism. You know, it's it's possible. Yeah, well, Gainer, if Gainer could make it to a combine, he would. You know, he would uh, stand out. But yeah, it's a. Uh, you know, we're having to having to stretch here, certainly. So yeah, I, I th- those are kind of kind of the guys that that I would look at. Maybe there's somebody else in the secondary, and I'm sure the audience will let us know. If we screw if we screw that up, but it, it is uh, I think instructive as to the thoughts on next year's team that you know maybe you don't have uh, maybe you don't have a whole lot of guys who have uh, next level talent on this roster right now. But then again, you don't necessarily have to have a whole lot of that to win six games, which I think is the goal for this team this year. As uh, NFL draft guy Jan- Daniel Jeremiah said, you know, he's like, look, with the offensive line, it's really not important how good your best player is; it's how important your worst player is. And I think that that analogy can be can be applied to this team in some ways. Obviously, it works on the offensive line, uh, which we've talked about at nauseum. So I don't want to bang that drum anymore tonight. Uh, but I think in other areas too, it's like, look, yeah, if you're trying to win at the highest level, which ultimately that's the goal. Right now, it's sort of a short term thing. Really, really making sure you're raising the floor is is pretty key. By the way, speaking of the floor, I want to ask you about this. Um, I know Jeff Cameron and Corey Clark were debating this on headlines. What do you think you would run the 40 in? Oh, man. Uh, let me put it this way, bud. Some of our listeners are very curious about this. And, and I, I, I don't think people have any context. As, as to, and I'm not trying to be like, hey, you know, we're smarter than you guys. I don't think people have any idea how fast some of these 40s are. I have a personal training uh, appointment for next Friday, and I expect it will probably be the most sore that I've ever been in my life. Uh, I'll, I'll put it that way as far as kind of where I am in a spot to uh, to rip off a 40. I'm First of all, I wouldn't do it. Like if you just walked up to me and told me, hey, run a 40, see what you can run. I would not do it out of fear that I would, you know, tear a calf muscle or something like that because... Uh, I haven't exactly been ripping off a lot of explosive sprints recently. I mean, it would have a six in it. Uh, just to be perfectly honest with you, I, I'd be shocked if I was under a six right now. I will tell you, like I've seen the data from a lot of these camps in prior years. There are like good defensive linemen who are 17, 18 years old who sign with you know, power five schools who are running in the upper fives. We know that people lose speed pretty aggressively, like what once they get late twenties, early thirties. You you can see this, you can see this in baseball, right? With with, with sprint feet, or, or excuse me, with, with sprint speed, and you know, they have the home to first times and, and the outfield, you know, max, maximum uh, mile per hour times, all that stuff. I think there are very few people out there who are over thirty years old who did not play college football. Who would run, or, or you know, didn't play some college sport? Who would rip off, you know, under a six? Ingram, like I, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape right now. I, I work out you know, about four days a week, sometimes five if I can. I'm, I'm two twenty, and I'm not that confident that I would run under a six, man. Now I, w- I would run under under a seven because, like, to me, I've seen some kids run over a seven at these camps on on, on the laser time. And I usually ask, I'm like, oh my God, that was like the slowest thing I've ever seen. That, that's like running with a sundial. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, break out the sundial to record that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but those are typically kids who weigh like 400 pounds. You know, 
I just think like you'll be surprised if you're an adult, and you're in your 30s, and you're, you're over 200 pounds, that like a kid who's 17 or 18, who's like 80 pounds heavier than you, and you think you're like a much better physical looking shape than he is, that he still smokes you running. Because like the, the twitch, it just leaves you once you hit 30. And your body may not start breaking down as much until you hit 40, but, but, but your twitchiness is, uh, is probably more gone than you think. So this is like the second time in four weeks we've referenced this, but what did old big boy Andre Smith rip off in that famous 40 that he ran? That was what, like five, was that five, three, eight or something like that? You remember what I'm talking about? He's a first round draft pick, uh, five, two, eight, which is incredible. Five, two, eight. Okay. He had to be close to like, oh, he was 332 pounds that day. Allegedly. And shirtless. So thanks, Andre. Five, three, two and a five, two, eight he ran. And they gave him $18 million. If you guys think you're within like a couple tenths of a guy who's getting $18 million, uh, I, I, I got news for you. That's, that's probably not happening. I'll go out on the street and, and mark out a, a rough 40 and let you know where I turn in. But it, it's, uh, it's going to be embarrassing. And uh, if I don't bring the subject matter up in the future, you guys will know that I you know, ran a, turned into 7.9 or something like that. I'm going to take my rangefinder and go mark it off on my street as well. I'm going to go ahead and run one. Maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day. And, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll time it somehow. We'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's not going to be very good. You remember what your fastest in high school was? Yeah, it was like a 5'8". Smaller now than I was then. My, my lifting numbers are nowhere close. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I'm slower. Basketball, real quick before we get to these Patreon questions. Two things that are somewhat tied together. Basketball, Graduates 10 freaking people in one day. I mean, that's amazing. Incredible. Uh, great to see, you know, him have the success that he does and also kind of bring these kids, uh, you know, through the program and, and place them in a, a really kind of opportunity to change the opportunities or change the, uh, you know, what they have in life, what they're going to be able to, to find out there, um, whether it be professionally on a court or professionally in an office or wherever else they may find themselves. And then, uh, announce a transfer of a Cameron Fletcher. Now, I say these two things are somewhat tied together because I think you only bring in a prospect like Fletcher, not saying the kid's a bad kid or anything else, but, you know, had some uh, some choppy times at Kentucky there, but a exceptionally gifted player, former top 100 prospect. Obviously, if you're signing with Kentucky at high school in basketball, you are a hell of a prospect. Uh, but yeah, next year's team has a chance to be really special. Uh, and the addition of Fletcher kind of only, you know, lets you have those, uh, those optimistic, optimistic dreams even further. But uh, a guy that I think you bring in because he's exceptionally talented and a guy that I think you bring in because you're confident enough that you have the locker room and uh, kind of the, uh, you know, the infrastructure there, um, both physical and, and uh, otherwise to get the best out of a kid in a situation like that. Absolutely, man. I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm not, not going to pretend like I know a, a ton about Cameron Fletcher, but I, Ham does such a good job with this program. I know they had a couple guys leave who they weren't totally expecting to leave, and, and yet I'm, I'm still like oddly confident that uh, that they're going to be okay, just because his track record, right? Like he does such a good job, and they're not the only program out there who's losing a ton of guys either to the draft or internationally or to the portal. I mean, we we think the college football portal is insane, like college basketball portal right now. Yeah, I was going to say college. Yeah, I was going to say college basketball portal is ridiculous. 
ridiculous. We're going to see some uh, some market forces at work, I think, in the college basketball. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not implying like money exchanging hands, although I have no doubt that happens. But you're going to see a lot more kids get in the portal and realize they're not actually wanted. And then every school out there is going to be able to tell their tell their their current players a story about how, hey man, you jump in that portal, don't be so sure we're going to take you back, right? Like like look, we have the option to to say this is your last semester of scholarship here if you jump in that portal. And look, this kid was a four star. Nobody ended up wanting him. He had to drop down. He had to go go to non scholarship level or FCS level where you're getting like sixty percent. You know, he had to go to um, you know. Jackson State or Jacksonville State or wherever. Just just something to think about. We go to these listener questions. Yeah, let's jump into our questions. Before we do, we'll thank our friends at uh, Madison Social and For the Table Restaurant Group. Uh, people, as we say, we're always fortunate to work with from day one. And my favorite things that we've done with with Matt and his team are are honestly some of the the lead up to uh, you know events, whether it be spring practice or first game or whatever else. Uh, we're certainly uh, talking with Matt about trying to do something uh, for the Notre Dame game. You know, not as though you'll need to do anything to bring people into Madison Social or Township or whatever else for a weekend like that. But uh, know that we are very much looking forward to, whether it be Notre Dame or another game uh, this season, to do something, some kind of meet and greet or, you know, relatively small size live show, something like that. You know, like I said, uh, some of my, so yeah, yeah, I've got my first one as well. Um, you know, some of my, Fondest memories of the Nolcast, uh, Nolcast are uh, meeting you guys over at Township, other places, and you know we're we're working on it and look forward to bringing you more details. I, I think that's that's one of the things that makes the show so special is, is the listeners and, and so special. I, I think it's special, and obviously our listeners do as well. Just you know being able to hang out with everybody, right? Like, like we we were just overwhelmed every time we say we're, we're going to have an event, and not doing one in the last year was was a bummer. And we're really excited to get back out there. And do one again with you guys. So can't wait for that. Austin leads us off tonight and says, if you woke up tomorrow and were given the power to force the outcome in the favor of the Knowles for one game this season, which would you choose? He throws out a couple uh, that he's got in mind. Uh, when I saw this question last uh, last night, bud, I immediately went to Miami. Uh, both because I, I think it gets you to win number five if you look at the schedule, which means if you go to BC, handle business next week, you get to six. And at that point, I think we can label this season uh, successful enough. Uh, and also would be a hell of a you know nice shot in the arm uh, as, you, as you round your way into the early signing day. Uh, I knew that there's an idea that you could say Notre Dame. It'd be great to you know get out of the gates and, and really have a, high-profile uh, victory, and it certainly would. But for me, this is Miami. Dude, I, I think Miami is actually the one I was going to pick, too. Um, let me ask you a question here. Do you think, in Austin's interesting hypothetical, which is a good question, I, I like this, I'm glad we're leading off with it, he really doesn't say how these wins happen. So, like, clearly, the one that you, that you would get the most benefit from as far as like win over expectation would be Clemson because right now you have probably about what a two percent shot to win that game, three percent. You know, it's hard for me to envision a scenario where you beat Clemson and it's not dismissed as some sort of fluke, right? So it's like, what are all their quarterbacks hurt? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, was it raining and you had nine turnovers or or something like that? So while 
knocking out uh, one of the favorites for the national title would be a big landmark win. I, I almost think that it's hard for me to think that's realistic anyway. So I, I'm going to go, um, since you at Miami, and I agree Miami's a really good one here, I'll go Florida. I thought about going Notre Dame to kick the season off in the right way, but because I think this schedule has many more you know, winnable games early, I think finishing strong here, which is going to be very difficult to do with this schedule, in my opinion, uh, would, would be more rewarding. So kind of like you were thinking with Miami, that would get you to five wins. You know, Florida could be that, that pivotal sixth win if you need it at the end of the year. So I, I think Florida would, would, would definitely make sense. And yet, I'm still drawn back to Notre Dame because FSU has not had a good opening to the season against a Power 5 type opponent since, what, 20... When was the old Miss game? 15 or 16? I think 16, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 2016 is the last time that I think you have beaten a Power 5 opponent to open the year. Is that correct? Because you, you lose to Alabama in, uh, in, in 17. You lose for, to, to uh, the Hokies in 18. And you also lost uh, to Georgia Tech in... Uh, or who'd you lose to in 19? Boise, right? Who are not Power 5, but they're basically Power 5. They're better than a lot of Power 5 teams. And you lose to, to, uh, to the Yellow Jackets to start off 20. So, I mean, it's been since 2016, half a decade now, since FSU has has won its first game against a Power 5 opponent. So they've basically been, as a fan base, everybody's been kind of like, damn it, man, to start the year. So maybe I should change my pick to the Irish just so you get a, a good win to start the year and you actually feel something and feel good. Tough to tough to go wrong uh, with either of those. But yeah, that's a, that's a decent uh, train of thought there. I would say, back to your point, I mean, you could tell me that you won the Clemson game because every team bus that they had, the axle broke and, um, you know, whatever series of events come up with it. Yeah. I mean, you could (laughs) label it a fluke, label it a fluke squared (laughs) and then more of a fluke. I don't care if you were somehow get a win over Clemson, I'll, I'll take it regardless of circumstances. But, uh, yeah, for this singular exercise, give me the game against Miami. Let's, uh, what is this? Four years in a row that Florida state's lost to Miami. Uh, it's not that, that, not let that streak run any longer. And uh, for me, that's the one that jumps out. So uh, Brett has our second question tonight. Brett says, football is often about getting the best 11 players on either side of the ball, which is why generational talent such as Tyler Hunter are so mesmerizing. I believe he's referencing Travis Hunter, but Tyler Hunter, uh, always a great player to have referenced in uh, Lowndes uh, County. Before the neck injury, he was... Tyler Hunter pre-injury was a hell of a player. Absolutely. We're going back 10 years now. One thing that has stood out to me is that we're seeing less movement of players, such as switching positional groups or sides of the ball. Uh, He references past examples of Herman Lane, Cam Irving. Do you have a theory as to why this may be occurring less? Are coaches getting better at evaluation earlier on? Does the Travis board, does the transfer portal allow people to seek schools with space at their current slash desired position? Are other positional groups starting to see themselves as only one positional type? Uh, given our lack of depth at offensive tackle, have you heard anyone discuss asking a player to move positions? For example, could uh, Marcus Douglas change positions? Even if he has physical skills uh, that diminish his effectiveness at tight end, wouldn't he have enough athleticism to perhaps be a better option than uh, Goss or Neal? So I, I think that, that Brett actually nails almost all of this. Uh, and I agree with him that I think Douglas maybe would have some potential 
at offensive tackle. But and, and so I don't want to just you know lengthen the show by repeating what he said. I, I will add one more thing here. It is easier to get guys to be open to changing positions when you have a lot of depth on the team and they realize they're never going to play at their current position, right? Like if Ermin Lane was actually playing a lot at receiver, do you think he would have switched over? No. If Xavier Rhodes was in line to to start quickly at receiver, he would not have switched over. You know, if Cam Irving, this is not quite as good an example, uh, but think about who was on that team when Cam Irving made the switch to to offensive line. Timmy Jernigan uh, was Jacoby still on? Well, he was on the 2010 team, right? Uh, was he on the 2011 team? I, I think he probably was. Um, Dawkins was gone by that point. McLeod was gone after 2010. They signed this guy named Eddie Goldman, <laughs> who, who wasn't too bad. They had Niall Lawrence Stample there. I, I think Irving probably realized that his path to playing time was much quicker on the offensive line. But if they didn't have those other guys around them, there's a decent chance Cam Irving plays for you and is, is a, a you know, solid defensive lineman for you. He actually played for, for the Knowles in that 2010 game at Oklahoma, right? If you guys, I mean, this is 11, 11 years ago now, but he actually got a penalty. You recall this? For pushing a guy on the sideline when Irving wasn't even in the game. He just pushed an Oklahoma player who came out of the sideline yeah. very late in the game and people <laughs> went nuts. Say, did he get a penalty? <laughs> yeah, did he play or did he just push a kid on the sideline? Uh, that's more how I remembered it. But. I thought he was penalized for it. I, I know the broadcast caught it and they were up in arms about it. Oh, he was, he was, he was, yeah, he was penalized for it. I just don't, I don't remember him taking snaps that game. I just remember him getting the, the penalty, but you know, I could be wrong. Um, I think depth on the team also factors into this. He had a, uh, a fantastic smirk on his face. Uh, that's one oh, yeah. final comment I'll make about the uh, Cam Irving foul that he gets. And he's, uh, <laughs> he's aware he's guilty. I'll put it that way. He, he knew. Yeah, he, he knew. I, I don't think Cam Irving's bad, dude, but by any stretch. Uh, all right, so third question here comes from Tom. Uh, with the draft this week, which former Noel, including one that transferred out, will get the biggest second contract? Thanks for always having great content. Tom, really appreciate the kind words there. Uh, we need to think about who transferred out. Are we missing somebody here? I, th- I think he's talking about what Dickerson, who will get picked. And then what, Trey McKitty, who I don't, I haven't seen on a whole lot of mock drafts, but I've also haven't been looking at that many um, that closely for rounds like five, six, seven. I'm going to go ahead and take Asante getting a second contract over Dickerson getting a second contract because Dickerson's injury history. And I know injury prone may or may not be a thing, but he has had quite a few injuries in, in his, his short college career. And you know, some scouts really love him. Some scouts think he's kind of limited athletically. I think Asante is such a smart player that that he's the smart bet here, even including the, the, the transfers. Uh, because it's just it's hard to see him not being on a roster Long term, with with how intelligent of a player he is, yeah, I agree. I, I, Am I missing somebody on the transfers? No, not that I can think of. Uh, no, I would I would go with Asante here as well. Uh, I don't I don't think McKitty always get drafted from what I've seen. Uh, so we'll see. FSU is going to miss Asante Samuel. We we should recall this episode when we do our our, our fall preview. Like they they're going to miss him. It, it's not. Uh, 
Not much debate there in my mind. Caleb asks, uh, is there any chance Nigel Lee Kelly recommits to Florida State? Yeah, I, actually, I, I, I do think there is. Um, they established that relationship early on. The staff certainly has not moved on. They still feel like they have a shot. They're going to work hard to get him back on campus to get an official visit for him and to you know, show him, hey, like this is the right spot for you. Up and coming program, you know, w- w- with a great tradition, you know, tradition and history, and uh, a, a chance to really make your mark and be part of something special. And from what I understand, Kelly is still receptive to that. So, if he doesn't go ahead and, and commit to Miami, I agree, and it makes me uh, feel weird to talk about seventeen-year-old uh, kids like mothers' presence on social media and stuff like that. But it's just kind of the way that some of this works. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously still a relationship there with with Florida State. Uh, Papuchas, the Kellys, uh, I would say of kids that decommit, you have a significantly better than than average chance uh, in that in that uh, series of circumstances. I, I think of kids that decommit, who you have a chance to get back on board. Uh, Kelly is is up there at the top of the list, so uh, we'll see how it plays out. But I don't think that's done by any stretch of the imagination. And you're right. The longer that this goes without him immediately popping for somebody else is a, is a good sign for Florida State. So uh, Derek has our next question. Before we get to Derek, uh, let us thank our friends at Congruity. Uh, as we are fond of saying, uh, Congruity has been a great addition for the Nolcast um, and would only be uh, you know fantastic for you guys, or at least we would suggest you call and see uh, if there's an opportunity for partnership like we found with, with Matt Lewis. Uh, Matt's been great for us. Matt's been great uh, for the two people that we've talked about who have since joined Congruity uh, in the year that we've partnered with them. Uh, ask that you reach Matt, 844-244. Ask that you reach Matt at 844-247-4100. Or you can email him at Knowles at congruityhr.com, N-O-L-E-S at congruityhr.com. All right. Uh, let me see here. Derek's question. Derek writes, I assume a good portion of the explosive plays from last season were from the legs of Jordan Travis. Uh, Derek, you were right. Uh, assuming Milton takes most of the snaps at quarterback this season, where do you expect the explosive plays on offense to come from this season? Uh, Derek writes, seems to me the running back room lacks a home run hitter uh, and our receivers who have explosive potential are young and experienced. What are your thoughts? I think Derek, man, our readers just on the ball tonight, man. Uh, yeah, Derek, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I think that they should achieve more consistency on a down and down basis if Milton plays because he is a better thrower of the ball, I think, than Travis is, uh, especially because it looks like over the last week or so of spring practice, he really kind of came on and he has a nice track record of throwing the ball. Uh, how are they going to do it? They're going to have to get more explosive plays through the air by guys winning one-on-one matchups, but also by scheming guys, you know, open. Last year, a lot of their explosive plays did come on the legs of Jordan. I think Jordan's actually still going to play a lot. Like, I don't think this is just lip service and they're just going to start, you know, start McKenzie and and nobody's going to play like Travis. Like, they're going to need him. Um, But I think if, if you look at it, they feel like, like McLean is actually fairly advanced for a freshman receiver. They're counting on Andrew Parchment to come in and be a part of it. I think Keyshawn Helton, Ingram, you noted this, looks better now that he's not, you know, not wearing that huge knee brace and, and is another year off the surgery. At the running back position, yeah, I agree with you. I I don't I think you got a bunch bunch of guys, just just Jags, right? 
I don't see anybody in that group who is, is special, who is no doubt NFL. Not saying that somebody can't emerge, but uh, you know, certainly um, you're, you're counting on it. This is the type of answer you give, though, when you're hoping as a team to get to six and six. Yeah, I see. If you do have home runs from the wide receiver position, it will be, um, you know, some of those situations where you may get them through the air. You may get a good mismatch and, uh, you know, you have that out there. I think Toa Philly, Toa Philly's got a chance to rip off a lot of kind of 17 to 25 yard runs. I don't know if he's necessarily a guy to, you know, take it off tackle and, and turn up field 68 yards for a touchdown. Toa Philly's got a chance to get you some nice chunk plays, but I, I don't know necessarily that he's a, you know, uh, change the scoreboard type guy on one run. I would agree with that. A couple more here tonight. So Bobby writes, uh, with the with the transfer deadline of May 1st, do we anticipate anybody else in the team transferring out? So this is that, and he says, uh, if it stays just one player, is this considered a win for the staff and a sign the team is buying into the message of rebuilding and knowing this will be a long process? Well, earlier in the show, uh, just in case you guys fast forward to the questions, we, we, we addressed this. The May 1st transfer deadline for this season is actually not, not the case. It's going to be July 1st. So we'll have to wait to see if only one guy transfers out. If only one player transferred out, I, I do think that, I don't know, maybe you disagree, dude, but I, I think there's a decent chance that that indicates greater player buy-in. There's some people on the uh, close to the program, I'll put it that way, that'll tell you that they think most of the guys that they've, the vast, vast majority of the guys that they've got in the program or, or have decided to be in the program, stay in the program. Um, you know, there may be another one or two people, but I, I don't think you see much. I mean, most, most of the people that are on the roster, they're fairly, fairly comfortable and confident in the fact that they, you know, want to be there and have, uh, you know, chosen, chosen to do so. I agree with that. Um, also, at some point, like you've kind of purged most of the guys you don't want on the team anymore. Like, there's only so many guys you, you, you can get rid of. You have to work with what you have in, in some ways. Let's end on this one because we are already basically at an hour here. Uh, D Walks uh, from Twitter says, Hey, question for the next pod. Uh, you guys mentioning about firing coach after two seasons in the early signing period era. What is the best way to fire a coach if he is not a good coach? If you know he's a major disaster uh, or will, will it not take you where you want to go? I want to run this by you because this is an interesting thought. Like, if you know the guy is the wrong guy, like FSU believed it knew with Willie, based on some of the stuff behind the scenes, and also the you know, the win loss record, does it make sense to make a move after just two years? I think we've repeatedly said that we totally understand why they did it. I don't know if they understood the ramifications of the move as far as, you know, the roster and how bad, how bad it was going to set you back in the ESP era. Would your roster be better if you had kept Willie for another year? I think that depends on largely how much chatter there was about his job. You were going to have to have another, another transition class at some point. I think certainly the class he was bringing in for that year was going to be a hell of a lot better than, than the, the first class Marvell signed just because that's how it works with the early signing period time and the lack of uh, the, the lack of time you have to get these guys signed. But it also delays the, you know, the overall rebuild if you hold on to them. The, the thing here is if you do it, if you do it in such a short order, you are stacking those early signing period new coach classes too close together. So your roster is going to be a mess like FSU's is 
for a longer time than you want. And it also makes the rebuild harder because you're not going to have much of a product to sell on the field like you're seeing now with FSU. Like this team is hoping to get the six wins so they can get to a bowl game. But like five and seven and four and eight are also in play here. So is seven and five, I think. There's not really a great way to do it. You just have to be aware of it as an administration. Like you got to be really sure and you got to realize you can't beat Tennessee. You have to, if, if you're really sure that the guy you're firing is not the right guy, you need to have like 100 million percent faith in the next guy because if you fire him after that, then you're going to just be in a Tennessee cycle, which is basically impossible to get out of in short order. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a great answer there. I think what you said as far as being fully aware as to the ramifications of, of what comes with firing a coach and the, you know how much it can kind of decimate a class. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, I think it's a good question. I'm, I'm glad that uh, D Walk submitted it and appreciate those of y'all on Twitter who constantly give us feedback on the show. Uh, I don't know that there's a, a best way necessarily. I mean, I, th- I think the best way is to have full expectations as to what's to come and to be as confident as, as you can and patient, uh, patiently confident in the guy that replaces him. Uh, so like you said, you're not, you know, kind of reassessing yourself every two to three years and continually handicapping yourself. Um, so unfortunately, there's a wee bit more in-state talent in Florida State than there is in Tennessee. That That's 100% true. Yeah. And I don't think FSU's boosters are, are quite as crazy as Tennessee's are. Awesome, man. Uh, enjoyed it. And we probably just a one, probably one episode this week. I know we did two last week. We'll probably do two the following week, I would guess, depending on how recruiting's going. So pretty excited about that. Appreciate everybody following us on Instagram at Nolcast on Patreon, patreon.com slash Nolcast. And of course, on Twitter at Nolcast. And you can also email us, Nolcast at gmail.com. Thanks for, for supporting the show, guys. And we'll talk to you soon. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles.